Well, good morning, men. It's a joy for me to be here with you. I figure I should start by saying congratulations on Texas making it to the Elite Eight. And uh, I. Congratulations. I, I don't know what else to say. I guess uh, I'm speechless. We do have one team from California who also made it to the Elite Eight, San Diego State. I've never really been a San Diego State fan, but I guess I am now. And uh, I don't know how many of you are following the tournament or March Madness or any of those things. But. It is interesting. It always happens this way. In this year's bracket, uh, the unexpected has become the expected. I guess this year there are no number one seeds left. So if you filled out a bracket this year, perhaps your bracket was as broken. Though I guess in a congregation like this, many of you are going, no way, I got Texas all the way to the end. So again, congratulations. Well, hey, it's my joy to be here with you this morning. Thank you for getting up on a Saturday and coming to have fellowship and food and enjoy a little bit of time in the Word of God together as men, and it's just a joy for me to be here with you brothers this morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, that will be our text this morning. And if you're looking for a theme or even a title for our message this morning, it's one that comes in the form of a question, and that question is one that I borrowed from a well-known author and Christian apologist named Francis Schaeffer. It's a name you may recognize. About half a century ago, he wrote a book, and then it became a series of videos And the title of that series was, How Should We Then Live? How Should We Then Live? And the goal of that series that Schaefer put together, the goal of that series was to help Christians think biblically and critically about how they ought to live in the midst of a society in Western culture and in Western civilization that is growing increasingly worse. And he was tracing the decline of Western civilization, really from the time of the Enlightenment all the way up until the time in which he lived and produced that series in the mid-1970s. How should we then live? And that question really is reflected in the text that we're going to look at this morning In 2 Peter chapter 3, in fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 11, the Apostle Peter phrases that question really in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And I want us to think about that question this morning. I want us to consider that question as men who are seeking to honor Christ in the way that we live before Him, in the way that we lead our families as husbands, as fathers, in the workplace, as employees, how should we then live? And if it was true in Francis Schaeffer's day that society was getting increasingly worse and growing increasingly dark, how much more true is that four and a half decades later And I realize that here in Texas, where it feels a little bit more like America than where I'm from out on the left coast, you maybe are more insulated to some of the things that are happening in American society. But if you 
click on your favorite news website, it's like headline after headline looks like something out of the downward spiral that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. Society is growing increasingly worse, where the wisest of our intellectuals are spouting things that are utter folly, and where the truth of what God created has been exchanged for a lie, and where we can't even figure out things as basic as gender distinction. But here we are. We find ourselves at the bottom of this Romans 1 downward spiral, the collapse of Western civilization. And as we look around and wonder what's happening in the world around us, really what we're seeing is the sign of God's judgment on a nation that has abandoned Him. But for those of us who love and know the Lord Jesus Christ and want to live in a way that honors God, the question we find ourselves asking is the question Schaefer himself asked, and that is, how should we then live? And... For you men, again, as you walk with Christ in your own personal devotional life and as you lead your wife in a way that shows her the love of Christ, and as you shepherd your children in faithfulness, as a Christian man, as a Christian husband, as a Christian dad, how are you supposed to live when the world around you is burning to the ground? What sort of people ought you to be? Well, the culture in which the Apostle Peter found himself when he wrote this epistle also was a corrupt and collapsing culture, pagan Roman culture under Emperor Nero in the mid part of the first century, probably in the mid-60s of that first century, Peter wrote this letter. Of course, it's Second Peter because it's his second epistle. In his first epistle, written just a couple years before this, the Apostle Peter encouraged believers to withstand the heat of persecution, to stand firm in the face of hostility and antagonism. And here in the second letter, he encouraged those same believers in Asia Minor, he encouraged them to withstand false teachers. Peter wrote this from Rome, and again, Nero was on the throne. You know about Nero because he's one of the most notorious Roman emperors, one who instigated that initial wave of persecution against the church, the one under whom the Apostle Peter would eventually be martyred. And he writes to these Christians in Asia Minor here in 2 Peter to remind them of the truth that would enable them to stand firm in the face of the internal threat of false teachers. So, 1 Peter is the external threat of persecution. 2 Peter is the internal threat of false teachers. And Peter writes to remind his readers of what they already know to be true. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he begins by reminding them that all that they need for life and godliness comes to them through the wisdom of God that is available to them 
And he will become specific about the source of that wisdom later in that chapter. It is the prophetic word more sure than even the most wonderful of experiences. And in verse 12 of chapter 1, he tells his readers that the reason he's writing is to remind them to remember what they already know to be true. And then in chapter 2 of this short epistle, he warns them specifically about the threat of false teachers. In the same way, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, that there were false prophets who arose among the people in the Old Testament, so there will also be false teachers who threaten the church. And he'll talk about the character of those false teachers how they are characterized by lust and greed and sensuality and pride. And he'll use all sorts of vivid word pictures to describe how despicable these false teachers are in the eyes of God. In fact, chapter 2 ends with Peter referring to them as dogs and pigs. They are the worst of the worst and the most unclean of the unclean. And then we come to chapter 3 in, again, this second letter of Peter, and he begins in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, by again asserting the fact that he is reminding his readers of what they already know. And I think that's an important detail, and I think it's an appropriate detail to emphasize at a men's breakfast like this, at a church like Countryside, where you men are so well taught week in and week out. The truth that we will cover today is not truth that you are unaware of. My job today is simply to try and remind you to remember what you already know to be true. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 emphasize the fact that the truth they are to remember is the truth that was proclaimed to them by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and by their apostles. And so in the same way that in chapter 1 He reminded them that the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God that's revealed to them in the Scriptures is all that they need for life and godliness, here in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 He reiterates that truth that all they need to remember is that which has been revealed to them through the prophets and through Christ and through their apostles. And of course, we have the prophetic word, the apostolic word, and we need to be reminded to remember what we already know. And then in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter chapter 3, we see that the false teachers were questioning the promise of Christ's return. In fact, chapter 3, the entire focus of it, Peter reminds his readers that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and that He will establish His reign upon the earth. In fact, if we were to sort of big picture what Peter is emphasizing in chapter 3, he really is making two major eschatological points. Number one, Jesus is going to return. And number two, this world will not last forever. We'll talk about more, we'll talk more about why that's an important emphasis here in just a moment. But the false teachers were denying that truth. They were mockingly asking the question, 
where is the promise of His coming? And Peter answers their taunt by reminding them that their presumption was based on a false premise. They thought history has always continued the way it has always been ever since the fathers fell asleep, sort of a false uniformitarianism. And based on that, they assumed that there was never going to be any consequences for the way that they lived. They could live however they wanted. Immediate gratification was their aim. This world is all that there is. Jesus is never going to return. There's no accountability, no consequences, and therefore I can justify all of my bad behavior that Peter had already cataloged in the previous chapter. Peter, of course, responds to this false notion, not only by reminding us of the promise of Christ's coming in verses 1 and 2, but also by talking about the precedent of the flood. This thing escapes their notice, he says there in verse 5, and he describes the fact that God already has judged this planet in the flood, verses 5 to 7. And then in verses 8 and 9, he makes the theological point that the reason God has delayed, the reason the return of Christ has not yet occurred is because God has a theological purpose behind that, and it is His patience wanting to make sure that all of His elect, all of His redeemed come to saving faith. So if we were to summarize the first nine verses of chapter 3, we have this emphasis on the return of Christ, an emphasis on the fact that this world will not last forever, in spite of the fact that these false teachers are claiming, hey, everything's just going to continue the way that it always has. Peter says, no way. No, based on the promise of Scripture, verses 1 and 2, based on the precedent of the flood, verses 5 through 7, and based on the theological purpose behind God's sovereign timetable, verses 8 and 9, the return of Christ is absolutely certain, absolutely certain, and the destruction of this world is equally certain. That then brings us to the passage that I want us to consider in more depth this morning, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. But it's very important that we understand that theological context. And again, I know these are truths that you already know. Tom was telling me at breakfast that he's been preaching through the book of Revelation on Sunday night. So, you've been thinking a lot in this congregation about the end of the world. And I know that you know this, but that eschatology, that truth about the future, the truth about last things, it has to be more than just information that you use to complete sort of the eschatological chart in your mind or that you use on Facebook or Twitter to win some sort of theological debate. That eschatological truth has to have immediate practical import for how you live. And that's Peter's point here when in verse 11 he asks the rhetorical question, 
that Francis Schaeffer summarized, how should we then live? Or what sort of people ought you to be? Verse 10, Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is, again, a summary statement of what he's already demonstrated in verses 1 to 9, based on the promise of Scripture, based on the precedent of the flood, based on the theological purposes of God. The return of Christ and the destruction of this world are inevitably certain. These are absolutely certain future events on the eschatological timetable. You know, I think if you were to ask just a, sort of a man on the street, how will this world end? I think you would get a lot of interesting answers from people, probably ranging from science to science fiction, right? There's going to be those who give some sort of scientific explanation for how this world will end. There will be others who will say alien invasion or zombie apocalypse or something out of a science fiction movie. I uh, was, in fact, maybe you've heard about this. I was looking online just recently about the doomsday clock. Maybe you've heard about the doomsday clock. There's a group of nuclear scientists, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They put out this thing called the doomsday clock. And the idea is that however close the clock is till midnight represents how close our world is to some sort of massive self-destructive act as a result of either nuclear technology or, they added this a few years ago, environmental change. The doomsday clock, in case you're interested, for 2023 is set at 11.58 and 30 seconds. So we have 90 seconds to midnight, 90 seconds to some sort of catastrophic destruction. And again, that's based on what these scientists are thinking about how this world will end. Now, we know the truth, of course. We know how this world is going to end. I think what's ironic about the way that people in our world tend to answer that question is when it comes to the destruction of humanity, they always say that the threat is imminent. But when it comes to the actual destruction of this world, they say that that is, or this earth, they say that is billions and billions of years away. In fact, evolution purports that this earth, this planet, will persist for another billion or so years until our sun becomes too unstable and eventually collapses on itself and the solar system collapses with it. But we know that all of that, whether it is under the guise of science, it, all of it is really science fiction because we know how this world ends. We know what happens as Christians. It's not science or science fiction. It's divine revelation that informs us as to how this world will end. And, and Peter makes that point here in verse 10. The day of the Lord, 
a reference, of course, to that eschatological day that includes the return of Christ, the establishment of His kingdom. It will come, and it will come suddenly, but it will also come certainly. It will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. I think it's important to understand that Peter here is thinking big picture, so he's not getting into all of the details that we would see in passages like the book of Revelation or in places in the Old Testament. He is staying big picture, and, and really the two big events that he's focused on in this chapter are the return of Christ, the second coming, and the destruction of this world. And the reason that Peter is focused on those two events primarily is because the return of Christ represents accountability, and the destruction of this world system demonstrates the temporalness of the things of this life. It really comes down to recompense and reward, or maybe better said, repercussions and reward. Because the false teachers denied the return of Christ, they thought their reward was in this life, and they thought they could pursue that temporal gain without any repercussions. And Peter is reminding his readers, no, 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 no. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. Accountability is coming. And for those who know and love Him, your reward is waiting for you, not on this earth or in this world, but in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So, that brings us to our main question, <coughs> excuse me, our main question this morning, verse 11 since, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And I want us to meditate on that question this morning in light of the fact that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. Scripture has promised it. The flood is the precedent for it. We understand God's sovereign purposes and the patience with which He has allowed for church history to continue for as long as it has. But we know with certainty that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And just, I realize the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return is something that every generation of Christians has held dear throughout all of church history. But brothers, I think if we look around us, we can all agree that the return of Christ is closer than it has ever been. Maybe we feel it a little bit more intensely out there in California where things are just a little bit crazier than they are here in Texas. I know everything's bigger in Texas, but the crazy is bigger in California, let me tell you. 
But we know that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And I think it's very likely that the Lord Jesus Christ could come back in our lifetimes. And we know that the things of this world are passing away, and we know that this planet is temporary, and we know that the pursuits of this life, excuse me, the pursuits of this life, they're fleeting. And so the question that Peter would ask us this morning is, in light of all of that, having reminded you of the things that you already know and asking you to remember those truths, in light of all of that, since you know all of this to be true, what sort of men are you to be? What sort of Christian are you to be, knowing that Jesus could come back at any moment and knowing that this world and the things that characterize it will not last. What sort of husband are you to be as you lead your wife in Christ's likeness? What sort of dad are you to be as you rear up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? What sort of neighbor and friend are you to be in light of the fact that Christ could return at any moment? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be? How then should you live? Because one way to live is how the false teachers were living in 2 Peter chapter 2. The false teachers who were pursuing the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life, things that the Apostle John says characterize the passing pleasures of sin. Immediate gratification, building up an empire on this earth, investing everything in the treasures and trinkets and trivialities of this world, and doing it all thinking, hey, Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years. He's probably not coming back in my lifetime, so let's focus on the here and now. I mean, that's exactly what the false teachers were saying in verse 3 and verse 4. And Peter's like, you cannot think like that. So in light of the fact that the Lord will return and soon, and in light of the fact that this world will not last but will be destroyed, what sort of person are you supposed to be? Well, Peter answers that question for us in this passage I believe he gives us three answers to that question. First answer is there at the end of verse 11. Peter would tell us, number one, that we are to pursue holiness, that we are to pursue holiness. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be And there it is, he answers the rhetorical question for us in holy conduct and godliness. The idea of being holy is the idea of being separate or set apart. It means being consecrated unto the Lord. And we generally think of holiness as merely external, and certainly Peter here is emphasizing conduct. 
but holiness begins with a heart that is consecrated and reserved exclusively in its devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And having devoted your heart and your mind and your soul to walk in His ways, then your conduct follows. Holiness is separateness, and then it's there in the text accompanied by the word godliness, which is the idea of reflecting the character of God Himself, reflecting the goodness and holiness of our Lord and Master. And so, as we see the society around us spiraling down and out of control, we see culture collapsing into chaos, we find ourselves asking, how are we supposed to live in the midst of a nation that's been abandoned by God? Well, the answer first that Peter gives us is, you need to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness being characterized by the pursuit of holy conduct and godliness. In contrast to the false teachers who pursued the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and were characterized by a kind of arrogance and smugness that thought they could do whatever they wanted without repercussion, those who understand that Christ will return and that this world is temporary are those who pursue holiness and exhibit godliness. And so, my question for you men this morning is, is this characteristic of holiness and godliness, is this characteristic true in your life today. And obviously, when we talk about holiness and we're at a, a men's breakfast, when we talk about holiness, we can get real practical real quick. When it comes to the way that you speak, are your words characterized by holiness and godliness? When it comes to the things by which you are entertained, is your entertainment characterized by holiness and godliness? When it comes to the, to the things that you watch, to the places that you go on the internet, is your browser history characterized by holiness and godliness? the way that you lead your family. When your kids see your conduct, if we were to ask them, well, what's your dad like? They may not use these exact words, but would their description of you include, hey, my dad lives out his Christian life in a way that's consistent with the gospel because I see in him a kind of character that's marked by holiness and godliness. I remember uh, Robert Murray McShane, who was a, well, a famous Christian dead guy. But Robert Murray McShane was a, a Scottish pastor who actually died when he was very young. He was 29 years old when he died, but left a mark on church history just because of his 
uh, pastoral integrity, shepherding care, and his zeal for Christ. He said once, and he said this of pastoral ministry, but he said, the greatest need of my people is my own personal holiness. And I think that's true not only for pastors, I think that's also true for husbands. It's also true for fathers. That your wife's greatest need is for her to see in you the kind of consistency of character that's marked by the holiness and godliness that Peter's talking about here. And the greatest need of your kids is for them to see in you the kind of holiness and godliness that is marked by what Peter's talking about in this verse. And obviously when I say that, I understand their greatest need is the gospel, their greatest need is Christ. But what I mean by this is that the greatest gift that you can give them is a life of integrity and consistency that is marked by gospel truth so that when you tell them, kids, you need to love Jesus, they can say, dad, thank you for saying that. I see that that's true in you. And it's the kind of perspective that is reinforced by the reality that Christ is coming back and that this world is temporal. And if they see in you the kind of lifestyle that looks like you're living as if this world is all there is, or it looks like you're living for your own immediate gratification, or like the false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, you're actually exchanging eternal reward for the passing pleasures of sin, then you're doing them a great disservice. Peter's calling us to live as end times Christians who live in light of future realities that we all know, but we need to remind ourselves to remember so that we don't lose sight of that which is next. So the first answer to our question, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of Christian men, husbands, dads ought you to be? You ought to be characterized by holiness and godliness. Now, Peter gives us a second answer. Verse 11, we are called to pursue holiness. Verses 12 and 13, we're called to put on hope. Put on hope. And I use the, I use the verb put on because the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians tells the Thessalonians to put on hope like a helmet. <clears throat> Excuse me, to put on hope like a helmet. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, he uses that same metaphor. He doesn't use the word hope, but he says that we are to put on the helmet of salvation. And I think it's appropriate to think of hope like a helmet because hope is all about your perspective, it's about your outlook, it's about the way in which you view the world, the way in which you think about this life in light of the life to come. And so we need to put on hope. 
You'll see this in verses 12 and 13. Peter says, we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You'll notice in those verses that both at the beginning of verse 12 and also near the beginning of verse 13, that Peter says that we are looking. We're looking. It's the idea of perspective. It's the idea of where we're fixing our gaze, where we're setting our eyes. We're looking for something. And what are we looking for? Well, verse 12 is negative. Verse 13 is positive. But Peter gives us a twofold answer to that. Verse 12, we're looking for the destruction of this present world. And verse 13, we're looking for the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Gives us both the positive and the negative. Uh, I have four kids. My oldest is 20. My youngest is 14. When our kids were a little bit younger, we used to do road trips. We still occasionally do road trips. I have a uh, brother-in-law who for uh, quite a number of years, he's retired now, but he was in the Air Force and he was stationed down in San Antonio. And we made the road trip from L.A. to San Antonio a couple of different times. And if you were to uh, look on the Google directions, the directions from L.A. to San Antonio are actually quite simple. Get on I-10, stay on I-10, get off I-10. <laughs> but those Google directions don't really do justice to the actual joys of, of a road trip from Los Angeles to San Antonio. And especially when my kids were young, as we're driving, my, my children had the ability to express their eager anticipation for getting to our destination through the form of that well-known question, are we there yet? Yeah, you guys are tracking with me. Are we there yet? And, and my kids were more creative than that. They asked it in lots of different ways. When we, you know, we leave Los Angeles, well, how long have we been gone? How long have we been going? How far is it to the next stop? When do we get to Arizona? When do we get to Phoenix? When do we get to New Mexico? When do we get to El Paso? And when we finally get to El Paso, we're like, we still have a long way to go. <laughs> because everything is bigger in Texas, and West Texas is bigger in Texas. That is a long stretch of highway. How soon are we going to get there? And for me, I, you know, I have, I have Apple Maps. I have Google Maps. I know exactly how long it's going to take before we get there. It's going to take 10 hours and 17 minutes, you know, but it's not always a very encouraging answer to my kids who are asking for them, they're measuring this trip mile by mile, and there's two things that are fueling their eager anticipation. Number one, they want this road trip over. 
And number two, they cannot wait to get to Uncle Matt and Aunt Amy's house because their cousins are going to be there and it's going to be the most fun week of their lives. It's the ardors and hardships of the trip and the joy and excitement of the destination that caused my kids to respond with eager anticipation, sometimes bordering on impatience. And that's what Peter here is doing in verse 12 and in verse 13. Your hope is characterized by that kind of eager anticipation as a Christian. And what drives that eager anticipation is both an eagerness for the hardships of this life to be over, for the road trip to be done, and an excitement for what is waiting when the promises of a new heavens and a new earth are finally fulfilled. And this is something that, again, if we come back to what it means to live as a Christian, as a husband, and as a dad, I think is just so essential to the Christian life, and that is your hope, your perspective, because it, it's seen in everything that you do. I mean, really what we're talking about here is having a heavenly mindset so that as you go through life, you're evaluating everything through the lens of <clears throat> what does this mean for eternity? And what a gift you can give to your wife and to your kids if you operate on a day-in and day-out basis with that kind of heavenly mindset. Hey, verse 12, this stuff is temporary. Hey, verse 13, one day we're going to be spending eternity in heaven with Christ. That ought to dramatically change the way that you live. It ought to dramatically change the way that you think about your priorities, the decisions that you make, the way that you use your money, the way you invest your time, the way you prioritize relationships. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with, <clears throat> uh, with high, school, high school reunion questionnaires. I don't know if you did a questionnaire like this or not, but it's kind of a familiar question when someone graduates from high school. They ask the student, hey, what do you see yourself doing in five years or ten years? What do you see yourself doing in 20 years? And, and 18-year-olds answer that question, <clears throat> you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a YouTube star or whatever. My kids went through that phase. <laughs> I'm like, that's not a real job. And I think the reason they have you answer that question is so that when you go back to the high school reunion, you can kind of chuckle at like, oh, <laughs> that's how I thought my life was going to turn out. But if I can just sort of play on that idea for a second, what are you going to be doing in 100 years? What are you going to be doing a thousand years from today? How about a million years? What are you going to be doing in a million years? Well, Nathan, I'll be dead. No, 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 you will not 
be dead. Now this temporal tent of an earthly physical body that you have will have long ago been buried and replaced with a better version. But you will not be dead. What will you be doing a million years from today? If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be in His presence in the new Jerusalem, on the new earth, celebrating the fact that He redeemed you even though you are an unworthy sinner. That's what you'll be doing a million years from right now. Shouldn't that reality impact the way that you think about the 70 or 80 very fleeting years that you have on this planet? I love the fact that you are studying the book of Revelation on Sunday nights And Pastor Tom was telling me that you guys are in Revelation 15, which means you're very much in the tribulation period. But the final couple of chapters of the book of Revelation where it describes the new heavens and the new earth, and of course we understand that when Christ returns after the tribulation, so the rapture's before the tribulation, then there's the tribulation period, Christ returns after the tribulation, He establishes His kingdom for a thousand years on this earth, and then at the end of the millennial kingdom, this world is destroyed and a new heavens and a new earth are created where the saints will dwell with Christ for all of eternity, and Revelation 21 and 22 explain all of that in glorious detail. If you want to know what you'll be doing in a million years, just go to the end of your Bible, flip back past the index, and read Revelation 21 and 22. And then ask yourself, if this is true of my future, how does that truth about my future affect my present? Well, there's a third answer to our question, a third answer to our question, what sort of people ought you to be? In verse 11, we see that we are to pursue holiness. In verses 12 and 13, we are to put on hope. And then in verses 14 and 15, we are to pay heed. We are to pay heed to ourselves and to those around us. Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, be alert, pay attention, take heed, be diligent to be found by Him, by Christ, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Verse 14, pay heed to yourself. I think there's a sense in which Peter is echoing what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, you know, be diligent to make sure that you are in the faith. I mean, there is that reality, and in a room this size with this many men, there may be men here this morning who have not yet given their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who have, I think this verse is a great reminder that the 
power to live a holy life and to be characterized by the kind of hope that verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13 describe is only possible because you've been transformed by the gospel of grace and therefore you have been reconciled to God through Christ and so you are at peace with Him. And because you have been given this kind of peace, peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that comes only through the gospel, the transforming work of Christ, you now, as those who have been justified and regenerated and are being sanctified, you have in Christ the ability to conduct yourself with the kind of holiness and the kind of hope Peter has described. But then verse 15, just a great reminder going really echoing the truth of verse 9, that the patience of God, the patience of God in still waiting for these cataclysmic eschatological events, the patience of God is allowing for a window of time in which the gospel still needs to be proclaimed and preached. And it's a great evangelistic emphasis here at the end that as those who recognize that Christ will return and this world will not last, we have a responsibility to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to explain that truth to all who will hear it. And so I, I love this passage, verses 10 through 14, because... It takes truth that you already know, truth that you're hearing on Sunday nights, and it, <clears throat> it emphasizes the practical implications of that truth for how you live here and now, right? 1 John 3, those who have this hope in themselves purify themselves. So as those who know how the story will end, Christ will return. This world will not last. There is coming a kingdom and there is coming a new heavens and a new earth. What sort of people ought you to be? How should you live? When I think about a text like this, I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25 about the master who entrusted his affairs to his servants and then went away on a long journey, and the servants didn't know when he was going to come back. But when he did come back, because his return was both imminent and certain, he called his servants and he assessed what they had done in his absence. And you men all know that parable because it's a well-known parable. But isn't it the longing of your heart? It certainly is the longing of mine, and I know it is of all of those here this morning who know and love the Lord Jesus. Isn't it the longing of your heart to one day hear the Master say to you, well done? my good and faithful servant. 
And what Peter is reminding us here in these verses, what he's reminding us of by these truths is while the master is away, we are to be diligent in holiness, steadfast in hope, and we are to be on the alert both for ourselves and for those around us, for our wives, for our kids, for our neighbors, for our coworkers. And you know, it wasn't long after Peter wrote this letter that he was, along with his wife, taken out and executed. According to church history, his wife executed first, and then Peter crucified on a cross and famously crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And in that moment when Peter went from this life to the next, when he left this world and entered his heavenly home and he appeared before his heavenly master, I have no doubt that what Peter heard Christ say to him was, well done. If we're to follow in Peter's footsteps as he followed after Christ, how should we live knowing that this world is crumbling around us, that it's temporary, that it cannot last, and it will not last, and knowing that our Savior will return, and even if He does not return in our own lifetimes, we will, being absent from the body, we will be present with the Lord. When we die, we will go to meet Him. So whether we meet Him in death or we meet Him at the rapture, in either case, what is it that you want to hear him say to you? And if the answer to that question is, I want to hear him say, well done, then ask yourself this, is the way you're living your life today as a man, as a dad, as a husband, is it consistent with hearing him say to you by his grace, well done? Pursue holiness, put on hope, and pay heed to yourself and to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of this text in 2 Peter chapter 3. Thank you for the hope that we have with regard to the return of your Son, the hope that we have of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And it's not just wishful thinking, it is hope that is based on the certainty of your character, on the certainty of your promises. And so, Lord, may we live today in light of eternity, and may that perspective not only change our lives, but may it bear fruit in our marriages and with our families as we seek to honor you, we know that the entire Christian life is only possible by your grace. And so it is, Lord, by your grace that we ask that you would enable us to be found faithful as we seek to remember the things that we already know. We pray this in your name. Amen.